Hello. Hey, Sean. What's up? Hi, Dan. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Oh, I'm doing fine. No, no complaints today. Well, that's important. Yeah. Eh. Start every day with no complaints? Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm not starting the day. It's halfway over, but... All right. You know, you know how that works. Sort of. Yeah. I'm trying to think of all the complaints I've had already today. What happened so far? Oh, well, nothing's happened because although your day's halfway over, my day is just beginning. Just starting. But, you know, there wasn't any coffee made. What else? What other complaints do I have? Oh, the guys next door are hammering. What are they so working many things. on over there? What's happening over there? Oh, it's one of those uh it's one of those things where one of the neighbors a long time ago um in a savvy business mood move <laughs> uh bought uh bought a couple of lots in this neighborhood that were that were decrepit and now they are developing those into homes. Ah. So it's the style of the time, you know, and so, uh, so there's some hammering, there's some ongoing hammering and there's, there's a, there's like a 60% chance of hammering all through the spring is my guess. Just that's based my, on the scope of the project. Yeah. Just looking down there and saying like, well, they're not, they're not done. Right. What else could happen? You know, hammering yeah. is what's going to happen. Yes. Mm-hmm. There will be hammering. I've been doing some hammering too, so you know I. It's, you can't be against hammering in this world, um, but yeah, it complicates complicates matters. Finding a quiet place to do podcasting is um, it's not <clears throat> it's not nothing to find a quiet place. Yeah. And uh, my old house had every once in a while an airplane would go over the top or somebody would car alarm or, you know, gunfight. <laughs> and this, this neighborhood, it seems, you know, it's just exactly like what happens when you move a hundred blocks further south. You get a lot more leaf blowers and, you know, screaming kids, people having fun, hammers. In other that words, people, you, you successfully surrounded yourself with people exactly like you. People who like no. to hammer, people who have kids, people who no. have leaf blowers. There is no one, there is no one within a 10 mile radius of where I am right now who is even remotely like me. Hmm. Not even your daughter? She is not like me. Isn't that interesting um, how that can happen? It happened to me too. Yeah. They're she like you, not, but they're not like you. Not like me. And, um, and in a, in a good way, she's, she's, she's very much like herself, but, but the other day we were early for an appointment and it was raining outside and she was like, well, I don't want to go in early. We had about a half hour and she said, you know, what is there to do around here? Yeah. And we were in uh, absolutely like the warehousiest <laughs> warehouse part of town there is you know there's there's it's just warehouses there's nothing to do around there unless you want to go into like a showroom and look at uh like samples of toilet porcelain there's not 
There's no cafe. There's no and nothing. And so we're driving around and she's like, you know, thrown this challenge at me. Like, where are we going to go? Like, we find something for us to do for a half an hour. And we drive past this building and I know it to be, uh, it's a big building. It's like a, like a square block building. And from the outside, it just sort of looks like a squat office building. But I'd been inside it and I knew that inside it had an atrium. The, the center of the building was a giant atrium and it had elevators. It had glass elevators that go mm. up inside the atrium. Right. And from the outside, it looks like a three-story building. But once you get inside, you realize it's a five-story building. So it's looking at it from outside, you're like, meh. And it doesn't, the thing is, it doesn't even have a, like a glamorous entry portal. There's no, there's no like welcome lobby or anything. It's just kind of like there's a door by the, by the parking garage that opens into an elevator alcove. And you take the elevator up one floor and then all of a sudden you're in this big, ex- exciting place. Exciting, you know, relatively. Mm-hmm. And I say, let's go into this building. And she's like, for what? And I'm like, well, let's just go explore it. And she's like, we're not supposed to be in there. I'm like, well, come with me and I'll show you what we're going to go do. We're going to go see a thing. And she's like, I don't think that we should go in that building. Very and, different know, from very, John Roderick there. Very, very different. Very confident about it. And I said, you know, so then I'm like, darling, come with me, your father, who is going into this building. And she's like, ugh. So we go in the building and we're waiting for the elevator. And she's like, "Uh, we're not supposed to be in here. And, you know, that's not like there's any signs that say keep out. It's just a regular (laughs) office building. (laughs) Right, right. And I'm like, just hold your horses, you know, just like cool your jets about where we are and aren't supposed to be. And so the elevator opens, we go up a floor. She's clearly, you know, she's agitated, right? She's anxious, but she's, but she's also expressing it with a, with a high degree of confidence. She's not like, Oh no, daddy, I'm scared. She's just like, Nope. So we get off the elevator and then she realizes, Oh, here's this new environment, right? It's their fountains. There are lots of chic sort of sitting areas all around this (laughs) building. And then each of the five floors, it's got glass elevators, but then each of the five floors has, when the elevator arrives at that floor, it has a, uh, a hallway that walks around the entire, uh, perimeter of the, you know, the, um, of the atrium. Right. And the, and the walkways are all, uh, they have a sort of glass, fronts or uh, you know they have the 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 wall the um the the short wall the balcony wall is glass so you can see all the people in the building walking around carrying their files and and it's a it's a you know in terms of we're in a rainy warehouse district dad find something for us to do this is pretty you know pretty, pretty good pretty okay I, I, I brought you to logan's run <laughs> And she's like, hmm, yeah, okay, pretty good, but let's get out of here. I'm like, sweetheart, look around you. They're glass elevators. And she's like, oh, wow, glass elevators. Let's ride the elevator. So all of a sudden, you know, she that was a quick transition. Let's ride the elevator. So we go up in the elevator. We get to the top floor. The door opens, 
I step out and she says, no, 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 let's just go straight back down. And I'm like, honey, come out of that elevator right now and you walk around this building with me and this is an adventure. And the whole time she, you know, we get halfway around and she's like, I'm going back. And if she was scared, you know, if she was like, I don't know, I feel like I would have the, you know, I would respond to that. Like, it's okay, sweetie. Like, come on. You're like, yeah, Com- no, comforting. You know, comforting. Or I would say, okay, we don't have to be in here if you're like scared or, you know, but for me, it, it, uh, my reaction is like, what is the matter with you? Like we're on an adventure, follow your father. And I say to her like repeatedly, and and I've said to her over the course of her life, like, do you not trust me? Do you not trust that I am (laughs) not going to get you into a situation that you can't get out of, or that you're not going to, that there's not going to be a problem. And her response is you all the time take us places where we're not supposed to go. And someone says, Hey there, you can't be in there. And I go, well, all right, point me. And then you leave, right? And then we leave Uh or I talk or I talk to the person and the person goes, oh, all right. Well, I didn't realize that all you were doing was just, you know, you're free to go. Or I'd say to the guy, we're not the droids you're looking for. And he goes, oh, not the droids we're looking for. You know, it's just like you're going through life. Of course you go down the street that says do not enter every once in a while. Right. But, you know, it offended her from the time she was very small. As soon as she could read traffic signs and understand traffic rules. She was a backseat driver. She would she would look at the speed limit sign and then look at the speed limit look at the, your um, your speedometer. Uh huh. And if they didn't line up, she would make a comment. Right. If it said no left turn, if it said all these things, you know, she was very aware of the street signs and very very much cataloging all the times that I, you know, broke broke whatever rule it was. Right. Anyway, so we walk around this place. We get up to the fourth floor. There, It turns out this building has an incredible view of downtown Seattle and one I'd never seen before because it, this building is the only one of its kind in this area. It's the only five-story building anywhere around. And it sits just south of town. And I, and I, I look into this this office and it's an open plan office and it's got mid-century modern furniture and everyone in there is very chic and they're all bustling about. And the, and the, the outdoor, so the front of what, how, how, what are the words I'm trying to use? <clears throat> the balcony is glass, but the entire wall of their office that faces the hall or faces the atrium is also glass. Uh-huh. And then the outside wall of their office is also glass. Okay. So they're really in a terrarium. Yeah. But from the hall, I can look straight through the entire office and see this panoramic view of Seattle. It's gorgeous. And the company was one that had some dumb company named like company.com, workforce.com, which still seems to be, I can't believe that's actually a thing. Uh, And this company, I looked them up and what they do is they design offices. They're a, they're a startup. And they will come in and design your office to make it look cool. Right. And let me say, they had done a good job designing their own office to look cool. And I'm like, you know, sweetheart, look at this. Look at this office. Look at that view. And she's just like, we're going to get in trouble. Anyway, that was her, that was her attitude 
until we went down and found a bridge, a bridge that went over the street. And on the other side of the bridge, there was a staircase that was like one of those sort of Cinderella staircases that kind of swept up to the second floor. Right. And we got over there and I said, check out the Cinderella staircase. And she said, uh, get a video of me coming down the staircase. <laughs> and at that point she had embraced, <clears throat> we'd been in the building long enough. She'd embraced that we weren't going to get yelled at. And then we had fun. We rode the elevators. We, we went up and down the stairs. We looked in the windows of, of, uh, different shops and I picked her or different offices, businesses. And I picked her up and showed her, you know, the different things. Well, Dan, when I was her age, mm -hmm. my mom would need to go shopping, right? She'd go to the department store or mm -hmm. she would, and she would just, you know, she'd say like, stick with me and she'd start looking through the racks and I would absolutely disappear and go ride the escalators and go, you know, hide in the racks and go to every department of the store. Mm -hmm. And half of the time I would come back down to where she was an hour later and she wouldn't really have noticed that I was missing. Right. Sometimes I got in trouble. One time I found the button that turns off the escalator and I turned off the escalator it was it was at Christmas. That's time. the little flip, the little thing that flips up at the top, or the no, bottom. No, it was right? down at it was down at the bottom, and it was a red button and a green button. Oh, it was that obvious. Oh yeah, but it was hidden. You know, it was down hidden, but but beneath. You know, it's not where you would find it unless you were crawling on your hands and knees on the floor. Right. But it's not like I was four either. You know, I was eight. Turned off the escalator. Well, the escalator was crammed full of people. Um, with their Christmas presents and stuff. And so, you know, there was a lot of consternation, a lot of like, whoa, and then, you know, people grousing as they had to walk off the escalator. Finally, somebody from the department store came around, turned the escalator back on. I had, of course, absented myself from the scene. I was watching from far away, an innocent child. <coughs> and as soon as the escalator was started again and had gone for a little while, I crept back over and turned it off again mm -hmm. and I played that game with the, uh, the employees of the, um, department store and all of the people frantically Christmas shopping through four separate iterations of turn off the escalator before I got caught. Right. But I was just a child, just a, just a harmless, innocent child with big eyelashes, doe eyes. So it's, but they did definitely called my mom. Yeah. But, but like my little girl would not, she just doesn't see the world that way. And it's so different from me. And it's not like she would, it's not like she cleaves to our leg, right? She's very confident. It's just, she, she has extremely highly developed sense of right and wrong, what the rules are, what everyone should be doing. And she, she believes that so she has that sort of security guard mentality of, well, if you're not supposed to be here, then you're not supposed to be here. Right. And my thing is, if you're not supposed to be somewhere, then you could be anywhere. <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> well, it means like 
everybody's, you know, if there are times in the day where you're supposed to be somewhere, Mm -hmm. you're supposed to be at school, you're supposed to be somewhere. But if in those times of day where you're not supposed to be somewhere, you're, you could be anywhere. And in this building, for instance, there are people who are supposed to be somewhere. And then there's everybody else who's not supposed to be anywhere right now. And so could be anywhere in this building, Mm -hmm. right? Like if a security guard came up to us and said, what are you doing? I would have said, we're, we are, uh, touring your building. Mm -hmm. And if it was a really intrepid security guard and they said touring it for why, I would probably say touring it because we are speculating about whether or not to employ this building in a project that is above your pay grade or something, you know, and I believe me, I know that this is all absolutely a component of what, uh, what Merlin Mann would apologize for as his privilege. Mm. Like I can do this, right? I can walk around a place like that. And if security guard comes up and I give them some sort of haughty attitude, the security guard will almost always back down. And if I were a person of color or if I were almost anyone other than me, the security guard might feel a little bit more empowered to, to be, um, the enforcer. Um, in fact, the people that are, that are, that do feel empowered to enforce on me are Mm -hmm. usually women. Um, if I'm in a, if I'm in a building and a, and a, and a woman asks me what I'm doing and I say, I'm touring the building. It's usually, it's usually a woman that feels like she's not going to, going to accept that explanation or, you know, like, cause there, there are kind, there's a type of person that believes that they are the enforcer of the rules. There's a kind oh, of yeah. person that gets off on enforcing rules. That's looking for violators. You know what I mean? Yeah, I do. There are, there are plenty of security guards and cops even that are not looking for violators. They're ready to see a violator if someone is violating, but they're not looking for them. There are other cops whose attitude is everyone is a violator. Right. It's just that a lot of them, you can't see what they're doing wrong right at this moment. Like every <laughs> citizen is a perp. Right. Right. And it's just that like you just, just cons- it's eventually they will expose the horrible crimes that they're, that they're doing. You just need to be in the right place at the right time and, and you'll see it. That's right. They're just, they're just concealing their, their, uh, their, their scofflawness at the, and that's, those are the cops. When you walk up to them and say, excuse me, officer, can I ask you a question? And they turn and get, and all immediately are giving you like attitude. Like, yes, may I help you citizen? And they're looking at you like, what, you know, what scam is this? What crime are you committing already? And Mm -hmm. you're like, I'm looking for directions to them. And, but then other times you, you say, excuse me, officer. And the officer turns and says, hi, can I help you? It's just a different mentality. And you know, the other day I was at, I was, Marlo is in a circus class right now. Mm Mm-hmm. And the circus class has some, has an area where parents go to wait Mm -hmm. and it's an area where you cannot watch the classes. I don't think that's intentional. I think they just gave the parents a coffee room or something, but I like watching the class. And so I kind of make myself, um, invisible, stand over in a corner, watch the little tumbling and so forth. 
And I'm standing in this corner and no fewer than eight employees of the circus walk past me, smile generously, nod, say hello. And I'm like, hi, I'm just, you know, watching the nodding, smiling, walking past, back, 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 and up, doop, doop, doop. <laughs> and three quarters of the way through the class, um, a employee of the circus who is one of the younger ones of the employees, a young woman with, <clears throat> with like short hair and glasses mm-hmm. is the one that says that she doesn't say hi. She doesn't say, um, anything. She stops and says, can I ask you to go wait in the parent waiting area? And there's no arguing with her mm-hmm. because any comment, uh, any, any retort I have is going to make me a dick, right? There's a parent waiting area. So the presumption is that that's where the parents wait. Right. Now, there's no sign that says, there's no sign anywhere that says all parents must wait in the waiting area. There's no sign that says, please do not watch the classes. And, and it's been, it's been amply demonstrated to me by everyone else in this place walking past me and, and taking an attitude of that there's no crime being committed. But this young woman decides that she's the enforcer of this particular rule at this particular moment. And having decided that she is, she is. Because what am I going to do? Say, let me talk to your manager? Am I going to argue with her? I can't argue with her. I can't say, why, why, why can't I just stand here? And it would, and it's a, and it's a particular quality of a, of a certain kind of young woman that will take me on that way in, in ways that a, that a man my own age never would. Um, and it's just one of the, the many interesting power dynamics of people in the world. Right. And I believe that my daughter will probably be one of those women who is just like, cause I already see her, you know, if, 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 if a teacher says kids stand in a line and one little boy can't stay still, my daughter will find that little boy down the line and say, Brendan. Stay still. You need to get in line. So she's sort of, she's sort of policing all the time. Yeah. Is that like her mom in any way, or is this just a completely her own thing? It may be like my mom. Mm. I don't know. I don't, I don't, my mom, my mom, uh, more than anything wanted not to call attention to herself. So I don't think it was like my mom. My mom would not have put herself in a position where somebody could have pushed back. Right. Marlo does not at all mind being the center of attention. And also in a situation like that, kind of relishes the prospect that, that someone would push back at her Mm -hmm. because she feels confident that she knows the rules. So if someone was like, mind your own business, she would point to the rule chart and say, God is on my side, right? Like I have, I have the evidence I have, I am backed up by, um, by the code. And so, you know, I'll fight you. <laughs> and that's, um, 
that's a that's a lot different than I think than anyone else in the family. Maybe my sister, you know, mm-hmm. maybe, maybe that's except my sister got my sister got imprinted maybe on me. Maybe she imprinted on my dad the same way I did. But but she thinks in terms of how she can get away with breaking the rules, not how she can enforce the rules on other people. So I don't know. It's going to be, it's going to be really interesting as she gets older because I mean, she certainly has not felt less empowered Mm -hmm. as time goes on. And, um, when she really starts to figure out how much her father, uh, pushes the rules, pushes the boundaries, um, I may be in for a world of hurt because <laughs> right now she's just aware of the fact that I, that I take her into buildings where we ostensibly don't belong and sometimes exceed the speed limit. Right. But when, when she gets more and more conscious of social norms, uh, like she's, she's not embarrassed by me very much. And I was embarrassed by my dad a lot. Oh, really? Because my dad was an extrovert. What my dad would have done in that building was go around and introduce himself. He would have opened the door to that open plan office, walked in and said, hello. Say, great office here. You mind if I, uh, Dave Roderick, you mind if, this is my son, John. Do you mind if we walk around, take a look around the place? And nine out of 10 times they'd say, sure, you know, you know, have fun. These days I don't think they would. I think these days there's, there's so much like security fetishism that, um, that there would be, there'd be a, there would definitely be somebody there that was like, I don't think so. But that was embarrassing to me because I didn't mind being in the building, but I wanted to sneak around. You know, I wanted to, I wanted to pretend we were spies, not waltz in and, and, um, and get invited to the, the company president's daughter's wedding. And that was exactly what my dad was hoping. My dad was hoping that by the time we left, that we would be honored guests at the, at the president's wedding. (laughs) And you know, that's why (laughs) by the time I was 10 years old, I'd driven a ferry boat. I'd driven a locomotive. I'd, um, you know, I'd sat in the jump seat in the, in the, in a seven, four, seven, uh, while it was landing because my dad just had no shame. He'd roll up there and knock on the door, door to the cockpit and the pilot would open it. And my dad would say, See, they, were just, they were just wait, waiting for people like your dad. They're just hoping. Oh, they loved it. Yeah. You know, Hey, I was in the, I was in the Navy. I was a pilot. I am a pilot. You know, you mind if my son sits up here and watches the plane land and they're like, pull up a chair. You ever seen a grown man naked? <laughs> you know, it was, <laughs> it was just the, it was just his approach. Now I would be, I would be in, I have embarrassment. That's the difference between me and my dad. My dad had no shame. Yeah. I do have shame. And I would be too embarrassed to do that. Now I and and I, and I wonder whether whether my daughter just has a more developed 
sense of embarrassment, but I don't think so. I mean, once she saw the princess staircase, she was happy to go up and down it, you know, doing a kind of Queen Elizabeth wave to all of her imagined minions. Right. She just doesn't want to be, she just doesn't want to be wrong. She doesn't want to be busted. That's going to be a challenge. Dan. Yeah, really seriously. We would like to say thank you so much to Brooklyn. And these are really legit. My favorite sheets. They give me copy here to read and they say what's required. So I've got to say some of the required stuff. But before I do that, I would just like to tell you about my experience with the Brooklyn and sheets. You know, I never really thought about sheets. Like I'd go to a hotel or some fancy fancy hotel somewhere, resort or something. And I'd think, wow, these sheets are really nice. But for me, that was just, that wasn't something you're going to have in your house. What you're going to have in your house are like the sheets that you get from like the local store that they seem fine, but they're not great. And then I got the Brooklyn and sheets. I thought this, this might be something different. It sounds kind of cool. Like a husband and wife traveled around and felt the same way that I did. They thought, well, these sheets in the hotels and these luxury resorts are really awesome. Why can't we get them at home? Oh, because they're $5,000. That's why we don't have them at home. And they said they didn't think it needed to be that way. And the reality is it doesn't. It doesn't have to be that way. You can get really amazing sheets at home for an affordable price. Because you, you spend a third of your life in your sheets. Why shouldn't they be comfortable? It's a new year still. It's still January for a few more hours. It could be your resolution to get better sleep, to feel better in your bed. Why not? But don't just think of them as a sheets company. They have more than that. They've moved beyond the bedroom. So they've got essentials for your bathroom. They've got towels, shower curtains, bath mats. They've even launched ultra soft loungewear. And by the way, if you're listening, Brooklyn, and send me some of the loungewear, I want to try that too. But this is the thing. It's all luxury products without the luxury markup. And I legit do love these sheets. You could not pay me to say that. I just want to be clear. I can read the copy Brooklyn and I can read your copy, but if I say that I love your sheets and love your product, that has to be legit. And it is, these are some, and they like one of the little details, every time I'm making the bet, every time I notice this detail they have, and it's so stupid because it's so simple on the inside of the bottom sheet, the one with the, the elastic part on the inside of it, they have a little tiny tag that just says long side. And another one on the other side that says short side. How many times have you put that stupid bottom sheet on wrong? A billion times, right? So they just put this little, like, why doesn't everyone do that? It's so easy, but they do it and they're cool. So listen, I want you to go to brooklinen.com, B-R-O-O-K-L-I-N-E-N, brooklinen.com. They're so confident in their product that all of their sheets, comforters, and loungewear and towels have a lifetime warranty. I've been using ours for so long. I wash it every week. And I'll tell you what, it looks brand new. You're going to get 10% off your first order and free shipping on all new sheets when you use the promo code ROADWORK. Only at Brooklinen, B-R-O-O-K-L-I-N-E-N, brooklinen.com. 10% off your first order and free shipping if you use that promo code ROADWORK. And uh, New Yorkers, if you're listening, 
You can get the internet's favorite sheets, talking about Brooklyn and more in real life. They have their first store. It's at 127 Kent Avenue in Williamsburg. And I don't know what that means because I don't often go to New York and I don't know anything about New York. But you know what? That doesn't matter. You know what it means. So go check out the Brooklyn in store in Brooklyn and uh, make them happy. And uh, maybe you'll check out their loungewear and tell me if it's any good. Thanks very much to brooklinen.com for making this show possible. But that was just, that's just a regular day for you. Well, there is no regular day. Yeah. I think we've established that. I don't have a regular day. And I don't say that as like a, that's not some, um, like cool dad boast. Right. I try to establish regularity all the time. I think I've told you when she was born and we went to the pediatrician and the pediatrician kind of became aware of our family situation and that we were, we were a modern family and had two houses. Yeah. The pediatrician and then every subsequent pediatrician, every book we read said, it's very important that your child have a, um, a very kind of regimented, dependable, scheduled existence. Breakfast at the same time every day, dinner at the be, same be, time. Because of her age at the time or just in general, this is always good? In general, children thrive when they have regimented um dependable days Mm -hmm. if they if they wake up in the morning and mom is making eggs and dad is reading the newspaper and the postman comes in and hands or puts the mail down and everybody says mr mcfeely and then the little boy on a bicycle throws a newspaper at the front you know like if that is what your life is the pediatricians are all super happy because they believe that babies and their little minds need um, structure. Mm-hmm. And I remember being like dismayed because I knew that was never going to be my child's life, not even for a minute. And here's, here's like a doctor saying it, it's got to be this way. Yeah. Um, and and, you know, and I asked a lot of questions like, do, I mean, how serious are you about this? Like, what if the, what if instead of that, uh, what if the child has something different every day <laughs> and the doctors would shake their heads ruefully and go, well, I mean, every kid has to deal with what they have to deal with, but, you know, try and give them as much structure as you can. And I was like, oh, okay, well, what if, but I mean, just for devil's advocate, what if there was as little structure as possible? Right. Wouldn't that, isn't that also good? And they would go, no, No. not good, really. (laughs) Sort of the opposite of what we're trying to say, John. Yeah, no version of it, uh, no version of that is better than if you just were at the same place at the same time every day. And I didn't understand it. I mean, I, I, I mean, I guess at a certain level, like I get the theory I'm, I'm not like a lot of pronouncements like that. I'm not sure like 
how many kids did they test? How, how do you arrive at a, at a pronouncement like that? Is it a thing where you, in 1961, they surveyed 1,000 juvenile delinquents, and the one thing they had in common was that none of them had Tang, and they all got up at different times of the day? Like, wh- where, where, does, where does kids need a lot of structure in their schedule come from, right? You just have, I mean, you walk it back and just kind of go, that sounds like science, and it is presented to you as science, but like try to describe the study that would produce that knowledge, produce that knowledge with enough certainty that it would then disseminate to doctors who would tell it to you like it was something that everybody knew and that the alternative is bad, right? Like, well, I'm just curious because I don't know. I mean, a, a little bit of information is a dangerous thing. Mm-hmm. And I feel, of course, that I am very science. I'm very pro-science. But also I feel like there are an awful lot of scientific articles of faith or or situations where if you really asked scientists about it mm-hmm. they would say well there's no way you could there's no way you could design a study to produce those results reliably i mean you'd have to survey you'd have to survey 10,000 people over the course of 30 years to determine reliably what what it was what kind of home produces a better child. We assume that two parents in the home and a nutritious breakfast is better than one parent in the home where you're just eating raw cookie dough. <laughs> yeah. We, we, we assume that and, and it, and it makes sense to assume it, right? Or it, it follows, but how do you study it? You can't take, you can't take a kid and his, twin brother and give one a nutritious breakfast and one cookie dough every day for their childhood, unless you're Mengele. So I don't know. My, my kid has never had a regular day. She has to be at school at a certain time and she has lessons afterwards. Mm -hmm. But when she comes home, maybe her mom is here and I'm not, maybe I am here and her mom's not, maybe we're both here. Maybe we have dinner at at five thirty. Maybe we have dinner at eight. Maybe dinner is really thought out. Maybe it's a complete afterthought. Maybe we all forget to eat until she's like, "I'm hungry." But we're, you know, but she's like loved and doted on, right? So maybe those things aren't as important as the uh, wise and all knowing pediatrician said they were. Who knows? I mean, who knows? Who knows whether my daughter's fear of going into a, into an office building with her father in the afternoon is a direct result of her not having <laughs> dinner right. at the same time of day. That's right. The, the, her little best friend across the street has dinner at 6 p.m. Every day has dinner at 6 p.m. Yeah. 
If she's at our house at 545, we get a text that says, send her home. It's dinner time. If Marlo goes over there at 615, she is sent away because it's dinner time. Too close to dinner. And by 630, the little girl is out on the street. Well, the, the, the one thing I can say with certainty is that Marlo has never once in her entire life had dinner at 6 p.m. <laughs> she's had it at 5. She's had it at 7. But never 6. Never 6. If is she's that, had dinner at 6 p.m., I can just say that 6 p.m. is not the time of day when I'm thinking of dinner or her mother is thinking of dinner. It is just not what we think of as dinner time. If she did have dinner at 6, it was probably because we were in Estonia and it was it was six o'clock, o'clock somewhere <laughs> and we were super hungry and we ate in an airport, right? right. It would just be because 6 PM. I mean, you just, you just got home from work if you're, if you're her mother. Mm-hmm. And in my case, 6 PM, I don't know what time, what time is 6 PM? It's like, um, it's some sort of in between state. It's like friscolating dusk light. Some strange, it's not day, it's not night, it's just, I guess it's dinner time is what, what most people think of it as. But like, if you eat dinner at six, in, at least in my case, you're almost certainly going to eat another entire dinner at 1030 or 1130. Right, because you're, not, the, you're not going to bed at 10. No. And if you don't go to bed at 10, you're starving by 1030. Right. If you eat that, you know, I'm early, I'm going to bed at 3 a.m. And I know that, you know, she goes to bed now at eight and she reads until nine. And how she gets old, wait, up how old is she that she does that? Uh, eight and a half. Oh, you're doing something right. No, my kids just won't read. They can both read really, really, really well. Like I was an English major. My mom was a lifelong college English professor. I mean, they can both write exceptionally well. They could both read at very, very early ages, but they don't. They just don't. To get them to read, it's like it's like pulling teeth. It's like it, the way that they respond if I suggest that they should go read something, it's like I told them to go jump off a bridge. It's just not, <laughs> it's just like not a thing. That, like, why would I go? Why would I go do that? I'm like, because books are great. And like, yeah, I can force them to read, but. And, but the downside is they're both so very, very good at reading and writing. It's Mm -hmm. effortless for them to do it. So a lot of the time that they say, oh, you know, your kids should read, they should get into the habit of doing it and it'll really help with their, they're already at like high school level freaking reading. So it's like, I can't, I can't say you need to be better. (laughs) You need more practice. How do I enforce it? How did you well, get your, yeah. how did you get your your kids to like your child to like read on her own like go into a room and read that's the dream that's the holy grail of parenthood I mean in our go case, to your room and read <laughs> she does oh it's, we don't have to tell her she's like okay I'm going to my room to read but the problem is that she doesn't have an well not the problem the the she does not have an iPad mm-hmm. she does not know how to control the television mm-hmm. or, or she does actually, she knows how to control the television. She just, it never occurred to her that she could go down and turn it on, on her own. Mm. She knows how to control it better than I do. The other day I sat down and I was like, I don't know how we're going to get this show. And she picked up the remote control and talked to it. Yeah. She said, you know, play Brady bunch. Right. And the, and it's, and the 
the TV started to play and I was like, how did you know to do that? Yeah. And she said, oh, it just says on it or something. I don't know. I don't know. I have zero idea how she, how she knew that she could talk to the remote control. I, I would never have, I would never have known that. But, uh, but she doesn't. So her friend across the street, um, is the same, uh, as it sounds like your kids are like she, she, in a way, when she talks to Marlo, she takes pride in the fact that she doesn't read. She's like, well, I don't read. No, my kids would not be proud of it. It just, it's just like, not a like, fun thing to them. Just like, you know, just like you're a nerd or whatever. But Marlo doesn't, Marlo's never played a video game. And when her friends play video games, when she goes to parties that have video games, she doesn't, she doesn't think it's interesting. She's just like, oh, they were just playing video games. And it was just like, oh my gosh, whatever. That's like my kid. Both of my kids love video games, love all of that. That's like, that's like totally their, their thing their jam both of them so i don't know it might have it might just be a an an innate thing you know dan when video games came out when when all of the kids had atari 2600s i would go to their houses and i would play video games yeah but but um but i had really no desire to uh have one or to play it when there weren't other kids around or even to play, you know, I would play a video game when it was my turn. Yeah. If there were five of us around a 2600, like the controller would go around, it would be my turn. I would play for the length of my turn, but I didn't, you know, I didn't fight for it. I was actually as often as not perfectly happy to just sit and watch other kids play video games. And so I made no attempt to ever stay current with video games. I remember when, um, what was the one with the body blow, body blow, knock them out, uh, punch out, uh, punch out when punch out came out, which was what? 1984. Are you talking about in the arcade or are in you in the arcade in yeah. the arcade punch out would have come out if I had to guess 1983. Let me look yeah. it up. Punch out arcade. Nineteen eighty-three. Who there loves you, you and who do you love? Come on. There you go. Boom. Uh-huh. When that came body out, blow, I felt body like, blow. Uppercut. Yeah, uppercut. Knock him out. I felt like video game technology at that point had advanced. <laughs> I remember yeah. feeling like that was an advance. Certainly an advance over like Defender. Yes. And that it had, it had advanced and, and left me behind. I remember feeling like, well, boy, you know, it's gotten so complicated now. There's no point in me trying to stay current. <laughs> because of a punch out? Yeah, because in order to do the moves, you had to like, it was, the fir- it was one of the first games where you had to do like uh, this controller to the left, this controller up, and then push the button. And that's how you do a, a, a like a, roundhouse kick or something you know uh-huh. like there were moves <laughs> yes it wasn't were. just like defender where you went in one direction shooting and then you turned the other way and shot and then at a certain point you hit smart bomb right yeah i was never i, I never went 
I was never, I never went above level 10 on anything, but punch out was one where it just felt like the kids that were good at it had practiced, had sat there and figured out the moves. Had, yeah. There were tricks to it. And I was like, well, left me behind with this newfangled technology, you kiddos. And I was uh, 13, 14. And from that point on, I never owned another video game. You know, I had in television, right? But I would, but I, I didn't really like it. And from that point on, like, I didn't, I didn't play them. I never owned a PlayStation or, or ever played one. Even if I went to somebody's house and there was a PlayStation or a, you know, whatever, a Nintendo. Yeah. I just looked at those things. Like I looked at skateboards. It was like, well, that seems like it's for kids and also a little dangerous. Like if you play a Nintendo, won't you start smoking more pot? I bet <laughs> you will. That just seems like a pot. It's just, it looks like a bong basically. Yeah. A, Nint- a Nintendo. It's just a, it's like an electric bong. So, but I don't think that's, <clears throat> I think that's something innate in me. I don't think that it was social. I don't think it was socially derived, although it manifests as a social problem or a, a social um, issue. But I don't think it was that I was socialized to not be interested in video games. I think it was innate. I looked at them and, and thought, hmm, no. You know, I I looked at a jigsaw puzzle and thought, that's cool. But I'm not somebody that would ever, would ever think to put out a jigsaw puzzle. If there's one going, I'll sit and fuck with it. And I think it's innate. I think it's a, a way that you're baked. Because all around me, that same PlayStation or that same 2600 or Nintendo, like I watched a certain percentage of my friends fall into those drugs become junkies and addicts Mm -hmm. and then a whole big subsection of my friends that never were interested in them at all and i don't and it was it had nothing to do with money or social class or it was just like you could pick the gamers out of a lineup right and um and not being a gamer and not being a skateboarder and a, and a superhero comic book fan did mm-hmm. not seem to put one at a social disadvantage when I was a teenager. Strangely, now it, it does, depending on where you are, depending on what online life you lead. Um, in a way, I feel like I was homeschooled by Christians because I have so little experience with so much of the stuff that makes up the kind of ready player one universe. Mm-hmm. People make Mario references, Mario jokes. There, there are memes that are, that are predicated on, you knowing Mario and Mario's backstory well enough that you would look at this meme and go, ha, Mario would never do that. And I, it's just, I, it's gibberish to me. I don't, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't know it. And I, and it was an, it was, um, what was it? It was, uh, 
I had no natural attraction to it. And I guess my little kid doesn't either because although I did, although she doesn't have those things, it wasn't so much a prohibition of them as it was that I don't have those things. Right. I don't fuck around on an iPad. So there wasn't, there wasn't one laying there that, that when she was fussy, it occurred to me to like, well, turn on this iPad and put it in, you know, give it to her and let her entertain herself. So, yeah, I think it might be a, I'm not going to go so far as to call it a gender, but I, but I feel like it's definitely an, an, an affiliation. Right. It, you, it is a con, you, you are of a kind with others that either are gamers or are not. Right. And I wonder what the, what natural selection was doing to produce. I know what natural selection was doing to produce gamers. Yeah. They're problem solvers. They're, um, they're cave explorers. You know, they're the people that you set at, at solving riddles. It's, I guess the, my question, my whole life has been not why did natural selection or why did God make gamers? Question is why did natural selection produce me? What was I, what am I here to do? And that's, I mean, I I think that's like one of the fundamental things that drives my life. Why don't I want to play Nintendo. Mm-hmm. Why do I, why do I look at it? Why did, uh, why did punch out? Why did I punch out so hard? Like, why did I, why did I look at that and, and know instinctively like, Nope, not for me anymore. It was funny for a while because I could figure out dig dug because it was two dimensional and it was just about moving your little man around. But beyond that, like, no, thanks. We would like to say thank you very much to Health IQ. The average eight hours of sleep per night, eat a quality diet or even a plant-based diet, the exercise more than four times per week. Basically, you're doing everything right to ensure that you have a long life. And uh, Health IQ says, isn't it time that you be financially rewarded for your commitment to a healthy lifestyle? That's what Health IQ is all about. They use science and data to secure lower rates for people like you on their life insurance. If you're a runner or a cyclist, or if you're into CrossFit, or if you're really any kind of athlete, even if you're just a committed weekend warrior, if you're a vegetarian or a vegan, they believe that you deserve to be rewarded for this hard work that you're doing in with these more affordable life insurance rates. Health IQ can save you up to 41% because physically active people have significantly lower risks for heart disease, for cancer, for diabetes. But Health IQ, this is not just a lead generator. They take the customer, which is us, that's us, and we're, we're, the, we're the people who want to get this. They walk us through the entire process of applying and the policies underwritten by one of their top insurance partners. But these savings are exclusive to Health IQ. You won't find them anywhere else and you must qualify to get a special rate. So to see if you qualify, go to healthiq.com roadwork to take the proprietary Health IQ quiz. And then depending upon your score, as well as other related qualifying factors, you can save up to 41% on your life insurance premiums compared to other providers. Again, healthiq.com slash roadwork. That'll let them know that we sent you and it'll help you get the process started with the Health IQ quiz. There's no commitment and you'll learn even more about potential opportunities 
to be rewarded for your commitment to living healthy. So uh, that's it. And let me say thanks again to healthiq.com slash roadwork. Go check them out. We sure do appreciate their support. What, what, so what am I here to do? If not play video games? Well, is it just, is it, is it that, that you, you know, you played the arcade games and you said, ah, I'm not so good at these. So there wasn't, there wasn't whatever the thing is that makes somebody get the little endorphin rush or whatever it is that the dopamine hit or whatever that when they're playing the game and they, they advance beyond the level or they get the power up or they don't die that there's that little reward in the brain that says, Oh yeah, you did good. Is that just, um, is that just missing for you? And you think that's why you never picked up on it? You know, like why do what, what, what don't you like about it? It's not, well, it's not that it doesn't sound that you dislike it. It just sounds like it's not, it's not for you. Like potatoes are not for you, but you don't, you're not looking at people who eat them and say, I hate you or I hate oh, potatoes. No. You're just, that's just not, not my thing. No, the, you know, those first person shooter games seem so interesting to me when I'm watching pe- like, I love to watch people play video games even now. Yeah. I'll sit in a chair and, and they're on an adventure and I'm looking over their shoulder as they wander through a dungeon and, Oh, there's a monster and Whoa, here they come and da, 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 and switch guns. Uh, it's fun. It's fun to watch like a movie, but to be, um, you to, to be in it, I don't know. It just feels like a lot of responsibility. Like to get Mario from one end of the thing to the other and to collect all the gems and mm-hmm. jump over the things and look but out I mean, for the you, dragon. If, if you don't do it, then it's really, it's only you that, that knows that. If I don't do it, I have not lost. That is, if that I, is true. If I do do it, if I do play, there is a 100% chance I will lose because mm-hmm. no matter how good you are, you eventually arrive at the place where you lose. Unless it's a game that has an end. And when you get to the end of a game, that's got to, that has to feel like even more awful mm-hmm. because now what? You play it again? So. So it may be as simple as I do not, um, I do not get such a rush out of playing that it outweighs the feeling of having lost at the end, the the bummer of watching your last character go. Just like oh great well. All I, all I used to feel at that point was, well, that, I wasted a quarter or I was almost there and I died, which is the thing that the game is trying to get you to do. Like, oh, I just need to try it again, get one more quarter in there. Mm-hmm. But then you get to the thing where you almost did it and you succeed and then you go a little further and you die again. And it was just like, I don't, I, I don't want to die that many times in this life. I, I just want to die the once. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I don't, 
I don't know. I, but, I think for a lot of people, that's fun. That's the challenge is you're, you're, you're playing the game and you're, you're, you're not always winning it. You know, you're, you're being defeated or you have to try again, or you have to figure out the thing or get your jump timing just perfect or whatever. But I think that's for a lot of people, what you're describing is a challenge. They see it as a challenge and they see it as, as fun, you know, mm. you know, that like, like the fact that you're, there's a hundred percent chance that you will, you will die is actually kind of fun to people. Oh, I know I'm going to die, but like, I'll, I'll die here, but then I'll get, I'll get further than I got last time. Then I'll get further again. Mm. And that's, I think that's fun for people. Yeah. Not me. I, I mean, I, I absolutely like to explore an old office building or a new office building. Mm -hmm. But the risk of me dying is a lot less. When I, when I was a kid, probably 10 years old, mm -hmm. in the neighborhood where I lived in Anchorage, um, they built uh, – Anchorage had a weird, uh, weird zoning in that it appeared that there was no zoning. And there's a, a – um, there's a downtown to Anchorage and there were plenty of companies that built, uh, buildings downtown, mm -hmm. but there were also, um, tall buildings that were not connected to any other tall buildings. We're not around any other tall buildings. Mm -hmm. They were just standing out in the, in the middle of nowhere. And there are lots of them. Um, weird, weirdly you drive around Anchorage and you're like, uh, why is that? Why is that building there? And it's an, it's an office or, or, uh, honestly, I have no idea in Anchorage in the eighties. They built a building um, just a few blocks from my dad's condo mm -hmm. that they called the Denali Tower. And the Denali Tower was by like 19, like 70s standards mm -hmm. or, or early 80s standards. The Denali Tower was very modern. Um, it looked like a, to us, a skyscraper, but it was, you know, just an office tower. It's just that it, it, um, it like soared over everything around it, everything around it. And I think this might even be true to this day. There were on the same block. Uh, there were little like one bedroom post-war houses that were, um, you know, that were poorly insulated. There were log cabins on the street all around this tower, oh. but here it was. And it had a big rate, a big like red and white striped radio tower on the top of it. 
So they started building this building when I was in fifth grade, maybe. And I swear it was, it was, if you walked out of my dad's condo and you turned right and you went to the corner and you turned right again and went up to the corner, you were on fireweed lane. And if you turned right on fireweed and went down three blocks, maybe uh-huh. you were at this tower. So I was at that construction site every day watching that tower go up because mm-hmm. that was at a time 1970 whatever nine it was at a time when of course nobody was monitoring what your kids were doing no. my dad was at work yeah, nobody no i had a, i had a house key around my neck but my dad never locked the house so i didn't <laughs> even need it so i would get out of school and a lot of the time i would just go over to this construction site and watch the hard hats building this building well when they were done and i realized that um, the first tenants had moved in. I remember this so clearly. I remember the smell. I remember the look of it. I remember walking through the glass doors into the lobby of the building. And it was a modern lobby, all glass and, you know, um, glass and like polished black surfaces. And I'd watched this building get built from the ground. So I, um, so I felt like I had some ownership stake in it. Right. And I'm standing in the lobby and what is it? 1980, you know, it was like the beginning of the yuppies. This building was the most modern thing I'd, I'd ever seen. Cause all of the buildings that my dad lived and worked in, they were all government buildings. Right. So a lot of them were built in the thirties. The buildings that I went to with my dad were all either old hotels, government buildings. They were all places where if you went into the men's room, all the stalls were made out of one inch thick marble, <laughs> like that style of yeah. old, where the, the stairs were made of sandstone. Yeah. And here I'm standing in this building and it looks like, it looks like a space chandelier. And I stood there and. It was, you know, the building had just opened and there were some office people coming in and going out. And, uh, I was uh, probably 11 by then. And I walked over and I pushed the up button on the elevator and the elevator came and I got in and of course I pushed the top floor. Of course. And uh, my heart was in my throat with excitement I, and I felt very much like I should not be doing this. I should not be in this office. <laughs> right, right. This is where grownups are and this is a brand new building and this elevator door is going to open up and there's going to be security or there's going to be a lawyer standing there mm-hmm. or worse, three mm. lawyers. Right. And I wrote, and the, I don't remember how many stories the building is, probably 15, 12, maybe not even, it's not that big of a building really. But I got to the top floor and the doors opened and the top floor of the Denali tower was not finished. Mm. It had, it had not been rented out. It was unclear what they were going to do with it. And so the entire top floor was just one big empty open space with windows on all four sides from which you could see the entire city. 
And I stepped off that elevator and the door closed behind me and I was in fucking hog heaven. I couldn't <laughs> believe it. Yeah. There were tool there were tools lying around. There was electrical stuff just sort of dangling from the ceiling. And you could see all around there was nobody up there. Right. There was nobody up there and there was no reason for anybody to be up there. And I made that top floor of the Denali Tower my playground. Oh, wow. I, I went every day. I showed it to my friends. Mm-hmm. And pretty soon, pretty soon, if you worked in the Denali Tower, you would be standing in the lobby waiting for the elevator. And there would be four 12-year-old boys all dressed like commandos, mm-hmm. like full-on, you know, combat boots and balaclavas and the whole nine. And those boys would get on the elevator with you and you would push the 10th floor where your office was and they would push the top floor. It happened all the time. No one ever said, what are you kids doing? That's amazing. They probably, they probably just wanted to avoid it or not. No one didn't care. No one. Yeah. It was just like, whatever they, maybe they're going to see their dad. And we went up there and we played on that top floor for not just the summer, but all through the fall, never saw a living person. They never did anything with it. And it was the greatest because we figured out all the stairwells. We figured out the parking garage. We figured out the whole building. But we had this clubhouse that was the top floor of the, of the, the only skyscraper any of us had ever seen. And it was, yeah, I think when I entered seventh, well, I know what happened. My mom moved to Alaska and she moved into a house that was less than a mile away, but it was over the line into a different school district or I'm sorry. Yeah. Into a different school zone. So instead of West high where my dad lived, I was going to go to East high. Instead of Romig Junior High, I was going to go to Wendler Junior High. If I lived with my mom, which I was going to do. And so when I started going to Wendler, I just wasn't in that, I wasn't in my dad's neighborhood. All the kids that I used to play with went to a different junior high and we just all, the, the thing all fell apart. But years later, and I say years later, like it was 20 years, but it was like junior prom later. Mm-hmm which is hilarious to think that that was like five years later because in my, in your kid mind, right? It seems like 50 years later. Yeah. Yeah. Five years later, there was a group of us going to junior prom and one of us was like, uh, one of the kids had a dad who was a member of the Denali club. What's that? Which was the latest, Anchorage loved this kind of thing. The latest really fancy restaurant that is really hard to get into. And a lot of times you have to be a member. There were all kinds of clubs like that. The petroleum club, the Alaska club. And these were, these were clubs that were either bars and restaurants that you needed to be a member or athletic clubs that you needed to be a member It was all about that. And the Denali club was the latest, just the coolest, hippest place. 
you had to be a member. You had to you had to be a member to get in. And this guy's dad got us a table for junior prom for like fifteen of us at the Denali Club. And when we were all arriving at the Denali Club, I realized it was in the Denali building. And we and I walked in with my date into that lobby and we got in and the guy that was, you know, our friend that was taking us to the Denali club pushed the top floor button uh. <laughs> and the door opened <laughs> and it was a super fancy nightclub. Wow. With white tablecloth, uh, waiters in tuxedos, like, Hustle full of people, loud people smoking and drinking and steaks and and uh, we were taken over to our table, which was I mean, I knew every inch of it. I knew every inch of where we were, but it was transformed into this like scarface <laughs> environment. <laughs> I can totally and, imagine it from the way you're describing it. <laughs> Each one of us, when we sat down at the table, there was some, uh, like there was, I don't remember whether it was a matchbook or there was something at our place setting that had our names in like embossed in gold. It might've just been a matchbook or a matchbox, some, something, some little thing that indicated this is how fancy this place is. Mm -hmm your matches have your name on them. And it was, uh, it was just like inconceivably luxurious. Yeah. And I sat there through the whole meal, you know, obviously like having a great time with my friends and raptured by my date, but more than anything, just looking around, looking around the Denali club mm -hmm. and, and just, you know, and it was, it, it was the kind of thing that at 16 I loved to do sit and think I was just a kid then. <laughs> and now I'm all grown up and look at how the world has transformed. 